Well, hello, Valley Christian Church. It's so great to be here with you here, Poughkeepsie Online. Can we just have a moment just to give Jesus some praise today, just to celebrate the name of our King, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, our Savior, Jesus Christ. I love the energy. I love the energy. Hey, listen. Uh, my name is Stephen Francis. I'm filling in for Dr. Greg. I'm the campus pastor for the Poughkeepsie campus. I just want to say to all my awesome people at Poughkeepsie that I love you guys. Uh, so honored to serve you. And by the way, you don't realize it, but I see you today and you look great. All right. You look like you showered. Thank you so much for joining us here. Uh, same to all of you wonderful people. And if you're watching online, thank you for joining us as well. Listen, we are in a series right now, and I'm actually here to finish it up, called Things Jesus Never Said. Super powerful series and one that I believe that has been very impactful. But I know that there's some people here, here, Poughkeepsie, online, that have probably not seen any of these messages. And I want to let you know that you're missing out. You definitely want to check out the previous ones. But I want to explain how important this series is because of something that happened in my own life recently. See, you know, uh, I feel like I'm part of the Valley family, so I can talk openly and there's no judgment here. But I wanna tell you about something that happens with me and my wife. See, me and my wife have these conversations sometimes or like these little funny arguments where like, it's kind of like a conversation or like an argument with each other, but it's actually with ourselves. So I'll give you an example of this. I used to make fun of my wife about this all the time where uh, she would try like a hat on and she would be like, hey, Stephen, uh, do you like this hat? And I kind of like be on my phone or watching TV or something and I just like look up real quick and I'd be like, yeah. And then I go back and I start texting or doing whatever. And then she'd be like, oh, so you don't like the hat? And I'm like, no, I just said I like the hat. But she was like, but the way you said, yeah, doesn't give me confidence that you actually like the hat. It felt like you were just trying to answer and move on. And I was like, no, I, I like the hat. It's a great hat. I try to explain the hat. And now she's like, well, no, I'm just not going to wear the hat. And I was like, wait, I, I didn't say I didn't like the hat. I just looked up and I answered your question. I don't understand. She was like, listen, if you don't have that level of enthusiasm that I need in order to pull off this hat, then I'm not going to wear the hat. And here's the thing, I used to joke about her with that, but this actually was something that I did to her not too long ago, where, you know, in my actual household, in my home, uh, me and my wife, we, we make dinner. She makes most of the dinner, but every now and then I'll make dinner. And I made this Tuscan chicken with pasta the other day, and in full disclosure, I watched it on some Facebook Tasty video, and I was like, oh, I need to try that. So I followed uh, the, the page, and I, and I made the recipe, and, and I served her the dinner, and we're sitting there, and we're eating the food, and she's not reacting uh, very quickly to the food that I just made. So I'm like, how's the food? And she's like, it's good. And I'm like, you don't like the food? And she's, she's like, no, I, no, the food is good. I was like, oh, it's too salty, isn't it? I should have taken the salt out. She's like, no, it's not too salty. The food is fine. I'm just being a normal person and I'm eating the food. And then I'm like, well, 
I figured if you actually liked the food, you would have reacted to it sooner. If you would have reacted to it sooner, then I would have known that you actually liked the food. But I promise next time, I'm not gonna put as much salt in it. And she's like, there was nothing wrong with the salt. I liked the food, I was just eating the food. See, I'm trying to have this discussion with her the same way she was having this discussion with me. But in reality, I think in my mind that there's something wrong when everything is fine. She thought in her mind there was something wrong when everything was fine. And I think the same way that sometimes we can do that together as a couple, many of us as people can often do that with God. We can think and believe that God is upset with us, that God is doing something to us, that there's something wrong when God never said there was anything wrong. In fact, God might be saying the exact opposite of what we are experiencing in our lives. And this is especially true when we're dealing with guilt that we feel in our lives. Every person in here, Poughkeepsie and online, has some variation of guilt that they deal with. In fact, a recent statistic showed that most people feel 30% guilty about the food that they eat. Or let me rephrase, that they feel guilty about 30% of the food that they eat. For instance, many of us know the feeling of just trying to eat one Oreo or just trying to have one chip and 10 minutes later, the whole bag is almost gone. Many of us know that feeling. Many of you guys, and this is 4th of July weekend, many of you guys know the feeling of just eating too much at, a, at, at an event or having something where it's kind of like, oh my gosh, like I feel sick, like my stomach is so full, I got to go to the gym tomorrow, I got to get my membership back. Many of us know that feeling. But that's just one type of guilt. Some of us know the feeling of parental guilt. I've realized this now as a parent, sometimes you want to be more present with your kids, but you have work to do. And I, this is especially prominent with a lot of women. Sometimes they would like to be home all the time with their kids, but they have to work and there's a conflict there. Sometimes there's just the general guilt, maybe in your marriage, of wanting to invest more time in your marriage or wanting to have a better uh, fitness level or wanting to be a better place financially. There, many of you in here are probably dealing with some level of spiritual guilt where, you know what, you know you don't pray as much as you should. You know you don't trust God or you're not in his word as often as you'd like to be. And because of that, you feel some level of guilt. And oftentimes we are so accustomed to associating the things that we're guilty about with a deserving of punishment. I've had conversations with people that said, you know what, the reason why I'm sick is because God is punishing me for something that I did in my past. The reason why my finances are the way they are, the reason why I didn't get the job, the reason why I lost the job is because, you know what, I wasn't tithing before. Maybe God is punishing me for something that happened in the past. But I want to encourage you with this today that although many of us are accustomed to this idea of karma or you reap what you sow, the idea of God punishing us for the bad things that we've done is something that Jesus never said is he's in the business of doing. And in our time today, I want to give you four stories that represent four different truths that prove that we don't get what we deserve when it comes to Jesus. If you're following today, I want you to write this down, that when you deserve condemnation, Jesus gives you mercy. See, this first story comes from John chapter 8, and it begins in verse 1. 
It says, but when Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Now, I want you to put this in your 2019 mindset here, Valley family. See, these religious leaders who took upon the responsibility to be enforcers of God's law catch a woman in adultery. Now, here's the thing I'd never understood about this story. How do a group of men catch a woman in adultery? What was the story behind that? Where was also the person that she did adultery with? Because according to the law, both of these people should have gotten in trouble. But we don't know how they caught her. We don't know why the other person wasn't brought forward. But we do know that this woman was caught and she was guilty. And according to these people that are supposed to be representatives of God, she was guilty of being stoned. So, of course, she's thinking to herself in this moment that Jesus, who is supposed to be God in the flesh, is going to punish her because she's guilty. But we see Jesus say this in John 8, verse 7. Jesus says, let anyone who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Then it says after this, that he bends over and he begins to draw in the sand. And there's a lot of theological debate about what Jesus wrote in the sand. Some people say that he wrote down the Ten Commandments so that they had a refresher in their mind of the sins that uh, were, might have been in their lives. Some say that, the, that Jesus wrote their names down because of passage of scriptures that talks about woe to those whose names are written in the sand. I like to think that Jesus needed to pick up milk on his way home, so he wrote in the sand, pick up milk on the way home. Jesus was 100% man, people. I'm sure maybe he needed a reminder. I don't know. Nevertheless, Jesus begins to write in the sand, and as he's writing in the sand, all of these Pharisees, all of these religious leaders begin to walk away because they know that they are guilty of sin. Jesus then lifts his head up and says to the woman in verse 10, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus is making a very big statement here. And I want to say this for anybody in here. Maybe this is your first time in church in a while. Maybe you're still trying to figure out if this is something that you want to follow. If you are someone you know has ever been dragged by a religious person because of an act that they have committed, please know that that is not a representation of Jesus himself. Jesus, knowing that this woman was guilty of sin, knowing that this woman had done something wrong, and let's be honest here, again, people, this woman was caught, caught in the act of adultery. What she did didn't just mess her up, but what she did messed up a marriage, maybe two marriages. 
maybe a whole family. This woman in our culture would have been canceled due to her actions. But Jesus says, no, yes, what you did is wrong, but I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to set you free. That's what makes this verse so powerful when it says, go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus isn't saying this as a warning. Don't go now and leave your life of sin. Otherwise, something bad will happen to you. Jesus is saying, listen, you're free. Listen, those things will not define you. Feel free to leave and live a better life. That's the truth for every person in here. And if you've ever committed an act of sin, you've ever done something that was so big and hurt a lot of people. See, a lot of us know what it's like to maybe cheat on a test or to cheat on a, type, or on a diet. But some of us in here may know what it's like to do something so bad that it messes up a family. To do something so bad that it causes for people to feel like they can never forgive you again. But whatever your big act of sin is, in the eyes of Jesus, yes, it is still sin. Jesus does not say that it was not a sin. But Jesus still loves. Jesus still sets free. That's what Jesus said, and that's what Jesus did. But there's another area where people often feel guilty that we can see. See, when you deserve rejection, Jesus gives acceptance. The second story where we see this is in Luke chapter 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Now, here's a few things about Zacchaeus that's very important. See, this passage says that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy. See, back then, the tax collectors were people that were despised by the people of Israel. Now, this shouldn't be too difficult for us to understand because I don't think anybody in here is excited to ever pay their taxes. But what made tax collectors back in this time of Israel so shady is that they were the thugs, they were the legal thieves of this age. See, at that time, Israel was owned by the country of Rome or the city of Rome. So because of that, they had taxes and they would employ people like Zacchaeus to collect the taxes. So if you had a tax of $100, someone like Zacchaeus would show up to your house and be like, hey, you actually owe $150. And there's no way for you to contest that. There's no way for you to prove that that's not true. So you would have to pay $150 and Zacchaeus would pocket the $50 and then give the $100 to Rome. And it says here that not only was he this tax collector, but he got rich off of it. He was the worst of the worst. But there's another thing about Zacchaeus that's worth noting here. Is that it says that he was short. And anytime there's a description of someone's physical appearance in Scripture, it's always something that is worthy of note. So Jesus wasn't just short for a regular person. Zacchaeus wasn't just short for a regular person. Zacchaeus probably might have been someone known as a, a dwarf or a little person. Zacchaeus represented rejection. People 
when they saw Zacchaeus because of the position that he had. And that might be some people in here where the position that you have politically, the position that you have about certain moral issues, maybe you're pro-life, maybe you're pro-choice. Maybe you're somebody that says that there should be legal uh, uh, representation of these particular type of people. Maybe you're somebody that doesn't. And because of that, people will polarize you. People will come against you. But then maybe you're somebody in here where the reason people reject you is because of your physical appearance. You know, often I think the people that are most harmful to us when it comes to how we look physically is actually ourselves. Some of you know what it's like to like try to take, has this happened to you actually? This happened to me the other day. I tried to take a picture of my son on my phone and I opened the camera and it was on selfie mode and I looked horrific. I couldn't, I was like, oh my gosh, is that what I look like? Why do I have so many chins? This is ridiculous. But either way, many of us know what it's like to be rejected because we're not as pretty as the other person. We're not as handsome as the other person. We're not as tall. We're not as smart. We're not publicly appealing. And that's what Zacchaeus felt. That's what he was dealing with. But despite all of the things that Zacchaeus had that would cause him to be rejected, we see Jesus say this in Luke 19, verse 5. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, Come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Zacchaeus, who was worthy of rejection, both because of the position that he had as a career and also the position that he was uh, physically and culturally, was accepted by Jesus. So much so that Jesus literally looked for him and said, I want to eat at your house today. And because of that, things have changed. And what I also believe, well, let me actually say this before I get to that. Jesus comes to Zacchaeus' house. And Zacchaeus is so moved by Jesus' love and acceptance that he even says, you know what? I'm going to change my ways. I'm going to give back four times whatever I stole. I'm going to be a better person. And because of that, Jesus then says this, Luke 19, verse 9, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus was worthy of rejection. But Jesus never said that because he was guilty of these things, that he was now less. Jesus saw Zacchaeus for who he was, for who he could be. And because of that, he loved him. And his life changed. Zacchaeus' life changed. But then there's a third thing that many of us often feel, and I want to talk about that. And that's when you deserve to be counted out, Jesus gives you another chance. See, this third story comes from a fisherman named Simon who eventually gets his name changed to Peter in the scriptures. 
See, Peter is chosen by Jesus, and he becomes not only one of Jesus' closest disciples, but Jesus tells Peter in the scriptures that he is going to be the person that starts his church, that he will be the rock, the foundation of the church. And the thing about that that gets to me is that not only was Peter given such an incredible calling, but the things that Peter got to experience was unlike anything that we will ever know. Jesus is, excuse me, Peter is the only person other than Jesus to walk on water. He saw Jesus do incredible miracles. He saw the transfiguration, uh, Moses and Elijah showing up on a mountain. But then think about all the other things that Peter knew about Jesus. Peter knew how Jesus liked his coffee. Peter knew the jokes that could make Jesus laugh. Peter got to be a part of Jesus' birthday parties. I do wonder if they had birthday parties. Did they, well, what was Jesus' favorite type of cake? I don't know. These are things that I think about. But that's how close Peter was with Jesus. So imagine the shock that happens in Matthew 26 when Jesus says this words, these words. Then Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. And a lot of times Peter gets flack. But what reason did Peter have to believe that this would be any different? Jesus, I've been with you so long. I've seen you in the most nitty gritty of moments. I'm not going to leave you over a situation like this. But then Jesus says, truly, I tell you. This very night, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples, disciples said the same. And many of you have grown up in church and you know the story already. Jesus gets arrested and Peter's just like, nah, not my savior. And he pulls out a, a blade and, and he cuts a dude's ear off. And again, I'm thinking in this moment for Peter, he's like, I told you, Jesus, I'm not going anywhere. I am here for you. But then as the night goes on and more people start to turn against Jesus and yell that Jesus is a fake a phony, worthy of death. Peter ends up getting confronted by a girl. And she's like, hey, don't you know him? And Peter's like, no, I don't know him. I don't know that dude. Then somebody else is like, no, nah, I'm pretty sure you get his coffee. I'm pretty sure you've made him laugh with that joke. I'm definitely positive that you helped Jesus 
plan that birthday party. And Peter's like, no, I don't know him. I don't know what you're talking about. I do not know this man. And then the rooster crows. And Peter realizes that he did exactly what Jesus said he would do. And maybe you're like Peter in here today from this perspective. You had faith in Jesus. You were following him passionately. But then somehow, some way, things got difficult. And it caused for you to walk away. You had a point in your faith where it's like, I will never leave you, Jesus. I will fight for you. I will defend you no matter what. Come hell or high water, I am yours, Jesus. And when the test came back that you had the sickness, when the money dried up and there was no way for you to do something about it, when the senseless death of someone that you cared for occurred, you eventually said, I don't know him. He's not my savior. And you walked away from your faith. Maybe not entirely, maybe just for a moment. But can I encourage you with this truth today? That even when you deserve to be counted out, Jesus gives you another chance. Jesus dies on the cross and he comes back from the grave. And I'm so happy I'm not Jesus because if I was Jesus, the rest of the stories in the gospel would have been a completely different narrative. I would have came back like some Kill Bill type of deal where it's like whoever hurt me, whoever got me crucified, I'm coming for you. Whoever hurt me when I was down, I'm coming for you. After all, isn't that what we like? We love to get revenge. We love to get even. Many of us know what it's like to be hurt by a friend that we trusted. And oftentimes we want to get revenge on them. Many of us know the pettiness that we felt when someone breaks up with us. And every now and then we like to check on their Facebook to see how they're doing to be sure that we're doing much better than them in life? Is that just me? I don't know. I'm... But Jesus comes back from the dead and he looks for Peter and he accepts Peter back. They have an emotional conversation. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? But after that difficult conversation, Jesus, like, Jesus says, all right, let's get back to work. You're still the foundation that I'm going to build this church on. You're still my closest disciple. And can I say to you today that if you've ever had a moment where you've stepped away from Jesus, where maybe you felt like God hurt you or you did something because you felt like God wasn't there for you, that that relationship isn't destroyed. In fact, God is looking for you. Jesus is coming for you. 
not for revenge, but to restore what was lost and to build something stronger. That's the love of Jesus. When you were guilty of being counted out, Jesus gives you another chance. And I got great news for you today, Valley family. Those other chances never run dry. But the fourth point that I believe that we need to know today is that when we all deserve death, Jesus gave his life. Some of you know the feeling of being condemned, rejected, counted out. And again, I can't stress this enough that Jesus is still here for you, that he still cares for you. But then there's a fourth category of people and I believe that it's represented in a man named Nicodemus. John chapter 3, it says, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God weren't not with them. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Put yourself in Nicodemus' shoes. Nicodemus is considered a ruler of the Jewish council. He is a top Pharisee. And the Pharisees, like I mentioned in the first story, are supposed to be representatives of goodness, of upright standing, representatives of God themselves. And maybe there's some people in here today where you don't feel guilty about anything. Life is good. You're doing good. There's nothing you feel any shame about. And it's very easy for you to come into this church to hear a message like this and think, oh, this is for somebody else. No, I'm good. I'm great. And let me say this, by earthly standards, perhaps you are good. Perhaps you are great. But Jesus is making a big statement here to Nicodemus. Because he's saying, listen, despite all of your goodness, despite the position that you have and that people even see how good of a person that you are, if you want to make it to heaven, you have to be born again. To which Nicodemus answers and says, that's impossible. I can't do that. I don't have the power for that. And Jesus is making the statement, that's the point. No one is that good. No one can achieve that level of goodness in order to be in heaven. Which is why he says this in a very famous passage that many of us know, John 3, 16, and also verse 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son 
that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus is making a statement that he's not in the business of making bad people good. Jesus is in the business of bringing dead people alive. Scripture says that we were born in sin. Scripture says that none of us are righteous on our own merit. And even though we can compare how good we are compared to other people, if we are born in sin people, we have no way of escaping that unless something more powerful than us steps in and takes us out of that state. And that is why Jesus came. Not for moralism, not for behavior modification, but so that we can have eternal life through him. See, as good as we could ever be on our own, as much as you could ever achieve on our own, we all deserved death until Jesus gave us life. That's what Jesus said. So how do we live according to that then? Three things, I believe, briefly that can give us perspective. For everyone in here, saved or unsaved, let me encourage you with this, that you need to always run to Jesus and not away from Jesus. Some of us have grown up in church. Some of us know what what it's like to feel guilty because of religion. And because of that, sometimes we sin, sometimes we fall into a particular thing. And instead of running to Jesus saying, Jesus, I messed up, I'm sorry, take me in your arms. We think that God is mad at us. We think that now he's out to get us. But based off of these stories that I just mentioned, that is completely opposite. That despite how bad you are, despite what you've done, and let me be clear, there are still consequences to sin. There are still things that if we commit in this world, there needs to be some level of responsibility made to make it right. But Jesus did not come to condemn us. He did not come to keep us down. He came to restore us and make us whole through his spirit. So no matter how many times you struggle with what you watch online, no matter how many times you struggle to forgive, to be kind, to do better for yourself. And I don't know about anybody else in here, but have you ever had it? I know this is true for me, where I try to be a better person, where I try to do something good for myself, and I end up just having a a huge, just monumental breakdown in failing. You ever have it where you try to be a better person and you end up doing some of the worst things when you were trying to be a better person? It doesn't matter how bad you are. Jesus still loves and forgives. So not only should we run to Jesus, but we should also never forget what he saved us from and how he can save someone else. 
Can we talk for a moment? I mean, I'm already talking. Something that annoys me with a lot of Christian people, and I've been guilty of this myself, I'm putting myself in that same boat, is that I know what Jesus saved me from. In fact, I'm bold enough to say I believe Jesus saved me from myself. That's how much of a wreck I am. Yet somehow, despite the fact that he saved me and I know all the bad things that I used to do, I can encounter someone that used to do the exact same things and for whatever reason I think I can judge them. You know how many times I've heard people in church being like, oh, I saw him outside of church and he was smoking. Knowing that you were smoking three years ago? Oh, I saw, I saw this person and I can't believe that they're doing this stuff and sleeping together and all that type of stuff. And it's like, weren't you also in the clubs doing that stuff before Jesus saved you? Why then do you feel you can judge somebody else on their journey? I believe that not only should we run to Jesus, but we should remember the salvation that Jesus gave us so much so that it encourages us that when we see people living outside of the things that we believe, when we see people still in the traps and in the struggles that we used to deal with, that we don't see them with condemnation, but we see them as someone's like, hey, listen, I have a way out. Listen, I have something better. Listen, I know you're, you may not believe it now. You may not know it now, but Jesus has something great for you, and I want to be sure that I reflect that. That's the attitude and the posture that we should have. And with that comes this last point. That not only do we not forget what Jesus saved us from and how he can save someone else, but that we share what Jesus said. So many of us in here have been saved and delivered in incredible ways, but we keep that to ourselves. There are people maybe sitting next to you right now, maybe in your family, maybe in your workplace, that if they could hear how they felt that they were guilty to, of condemnation, of rejection, of being counted out, if they heard your story, Perhaps they can trust and believe in Jesus for themselves too. I pray that be the motive of our hearts. I pray that be the vision that we wake up to every day. And with that, I'd love to pray for that right now. Join me in prayer. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you. That in all the things that were done, that all the things that you've experienced, you never said, I don't like you. Stay away from me. I have nothing for you. You always drew closer. You always did the unexpected. And I thank you that you did that by giving us salvation when we were worthy of death and didn't even want the life that you were willing to offer. God, I pray that every person today here, Poughkeepsie and online, lives a life reflective of this salvation gift. And not only do that, but extend it and share it to other people that may need to know it too. And maybe you're someone under the sound of my voice 
that says, you know what? I want to receive Jesus. I know these feelings. And I thought God was mad at me. I thought he didn't want anything to do with me. But now I see he's looking for me. He wants me. And I want to encourage you that he's here today. And if you want to receive Jesus in your life, the forgiveness that Jesus offers, just pray these words with me. Dear Jesus, please come into my life. Thank you that I'm free from condemnation, rejection, being counted out, and even death. I receive your gift of life today. In Jesus' name.